Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back to my favorite flop. I'm your host, Christina, and this is my co-host, Bobby. I'm Bobby. Hi. (laughs) So, Christina, uh, we have a very exciting episode for everyone today, right? Yes, we do. I know we've been talking about breaking the rules, and we kind of have. Tonight, it's uh, literally broken with a baseball bat. So... (laughs) Literally. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Well, before we get into all of that, uh, we should probably start with our, you know, good old standard game of, hey, Christina, what have you been listening to? Well, I decided to stay in theme and um, I picked a show that's also based on a cartoon character. Okay. And I decided to listen to Shrek. Yes. Shrek. The musical or Shrek, Shrek the musical? Okay. Just yes. double checking because there are songs in the movies. There are songs in the movie. You could consider them movie musicals, I guess. No, this was um, Shrek the musical, the Broadway musical, which I guess technically maybe one day we'll get to talk about on the I, show. I hope so because I have <laughs> opinions, but this is about you talking about it. So Yes. Uh, Shrek is actually one of my favorite musicals. And uh, I know I'm probably in the minority with no, that. No, people love Shrek. I... I- I love Shrek because it's written by one of my favorite playwrights. I love David Lindsay a bear. And I love his book for this. And it's just, it's so good. Um, And there's just such a good message in it. And and some of my favorite Brian Darcy James, which I know is kind of silly, but I love him as Shrek. I just uh, do. Sure. And of course, Fiona's on my bucket list. Yeah, no, I just, I love the show. I, we actually, we walked back down the aisle after we said our vows okay. <laughs> to it. <laughs> to wait, wait, to what song? To the closer. Oh. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, you know, I love a fart joke and... I mean, Steven doesn't, and it's great. <laughs> I like, I think the first time I heard Shrek, I was working out of town on a gig and I enjoyed a lot of it. But speaking of fart jokes, I just had a hard time understanding what was going on. Really? Yes. I just, I was, I was, I understood, but I didn't. And then I saw it on Broadway, like shortly after that. And, yeah. Um, it made a lot more sense, but yeah, I I don't know. I guess it's a show you have to experience, but which you all can because it's on Netflix. Um, it is. It's on Netflix, but yeah, no, I just I think it's such a beautiful show, and it's so much fun, and there's so there's so much to play with as an ensemble, like of actors and and sure. the characters you get to create. There's so many funny lines. I don't know. I, in a weird way, it's one of those shows for me that's like actor and director proof because it's written so well. The sure. book is written so well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just love it. So that's what I listened to this week. Well, Bobby, what have you been listening to? Well, I tried to stay on brand as well um, with the theme of our episode, but in a different way. Okay. Um, I'm going to give away 
A little teeny hint is today's shows might have something or other to do with comic strips. Uh, And so I went back and listened to the 1982 soundtrack of Annie. And (laughs) I knew you were going to have a response. Well, I feel like it gets brought up a lot on this podcast Mostly by Bobby. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was like, when's the last time I actually sat down and listened to the soundtrack? So I did. And um, there were some things that surprised me about it. Number one. Like what? Well, I do really like the original movie. And I know that's sacrilege mm. to fans of the stage show because it's so different than Annie on stage, you know? Oh, like, okay. Especially the final act when... Rooster literally tries to kill Annie and is like climbing up a bridge, maybe. And Tim Curry is up there and Bernadette Peters is not so nice either. And Carol Burnett's like, wait a second. This is not what I was planning. I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The stakes are much higher. Why they're celebrating the 4th of July at the end of the movie instead of Christmas, I still don't understand. But (laughs) there you go. Fireworks. You need fireworks. Uh, You need at the end of Annie. You know what Annie needs? fireworks fireworks that's um i enjoy the movie but i actually realized that i don't like the soundtrack because it is one of those film soundtracks that i i see what they tried to do but it sounds like so much of it was recorded live on set so it feels like you're watching the movie without the visuals and Mm. then you can see all the flaws and the vocals and everything. And I don't know, I'm a big proponent of film soundtracks when you have that kind of money to have an 80 piece orchestra and you have the time to make everything sound as good as it possibly can. It kind of upsets me as a aficionado of this genre when it doesn't, you know what I mean? Oh, how interesting. I mean, I feel the exact opposite when I watch a movie musical. Ah, okay. There you go. But that's, again, that like you pointed out, it's really different listening to that without the visual. Right. My thing is, is when I'm watching it, I want it to feel like they're singing live. And so that's what I like about it. But I I hear what you're saying. I I can imagine. I don't think I've gone back and like listened to a movie musical soundtrack that they did sing live on set for. Right. And like it and like purposely done that. I don't think I've. I don't think I have, so so maybe I I I would feel differently. I will tell you the one that gets it right, and I'm going to thank the Walt Disney Corporation, (laughs) Newsies. Kenny Ortega, it's such a shame that movie was not successful because he had them record, pre-record everything that they lip-synced to, but he had them sing live on set to themselves. So as it pans across in the movie, Mm. like different um, group scenes, you get to hear individual newsy voices come out of the chorus. And it is so beautifully well mixed. But on the soundtrack, it just sounds amazing because we don't need to hear all those individual voices when you're just listening to it. Right. On Yeah, anyway. So that's what I listened to this week. Annie. 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 Okay, should we give them the clues? Let's let's Okay, yes. So, uh the first clue which we gave at the end of the last episode was this. The title characters of these two shows both appear as named characters in the other show. Hmm. hmm. Clue number 2 was on Twitter. The Merriam-Webster definition of philosophy. Philosophy. And that was followed by our Instagram clue, which was a picture of the off-Broadway shoe warehouse. Clue number four, the Facebook blog, all about five musical flops based on comic strips. 
And that was entertaining. Surprisingly, five of them. And (laughs) that leaves us with our final clue, which we're giving you now. Composer Andrew Lippa has officially worked on revised versions of both of these musicals. Drum roll. (laughs) You're a good man, Charlie Brown. And Snoopy the Musical. Ta-da. Now, we need to give a little bit of an asterisk here. Snoopy the Musical, we're really breaking the rules today, right? We really did, yes. Because it's our first show that we're covering on this podcast that never has had a performance on Broadway. But also actually flopped off Broadway. Absolutely, It's absolutely a flop. That's the reason we're doing it. But <laughs> um, I think everything else we've covered has at least... Had a Broadway preview had a exactly because <laughs> we've had some that didn't officially open but uh that's kind of cool right like we I are think so expanding the floposphere okay so to start this episode out because these are both based on work by charles schultz we're gonna start yes. with some facts about charles schultz so for those of you who don't know charles schultz is the writer and cartoonist I believe is the official title of the Peanuts cartoons. Peanuts. Peanuts. He was born in 1922 and died in 2000. He's from St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, yeah, he fought in World War II. He had a long and lustrous career as the creator of the Peanuts. There's an entire museum dedicated to him up in Northern California. Yeah. And I really want to go there one day. I think that would be a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that one man created such a legacy that not only transcended the Sunday comics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like animated films, holiday specials, two, at least two musicals, and um, theme park areas, you know, the Knott's theme parks have Camp Snoopy, like you can literally go meet Snoopy at the Mall of America and Knott's Berry Farm. Like, yeah, it is. It's amazing. I mean, at the height of Peanuts, they were published daily um, in 2,600 papers in 75 countries and 21 languages. And that was over 50 years. I mean, that's crazy town. No, it's insane. I can't think of, there are very few cartoon figures you know Mm -hmm. you think of the mickey mouses you think of maybe the flintstones there are very few that have stood the test of time that have been relevant decade after decade you know betty boop has gone through waves you know what i mean sure other ones have gone through waves even the looney tunes have gone through up until recently a lull of not being relevant anymore but i can't even imagine a world where kids don't know who charlie brown and snoopy are and the rest of the peanuts gang Well, and what I thought was really beautiful is that Charles Schultz actually drew and wrote the Peanuts up until about three months before he died. Yes. Even, and he was dealing with some motor skill issues towards the end of his life and still managed to draw. I mean, there are some experts who have gone back and looked at it and they're like, you can kind of see some of the shaky lines. And I'm like, okay, guys, (laughs) take a beat. (laughs) Right. Um, And it's really incredible to me that he continued so far into it and he never wanted anyone else to draw Charlie Brown. Well, and it's iconic. Like you can look at even without the characters there. I mean, everything down from the way he drew clouds and the way he grew, drew the grass. If you just saw the clouds and the grass, you would know 
It well, was and a Schultz. lot of people say that he was um, he created the modern cartoonist. Um, okay. His style is what inspired so many who came after him. Sure, um, but no one else has been able to emulate what he created. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it really is such a priceless treasure of Americana, what Schultz did with the Peanuts gang. And what I think the most genius thing about it is it can be enjoyed by children and understood by children, but it's also meant to be enjoyed and understood by adults. You know, Mm. these little kids are dealing with issues and situations and uh, whatever that appeal to people of all ages. You know, you can look at the world of Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, and Lucy, and it doesn't matter how old you are. There's a lot you can take away from yeah. the stories and, and situations he put them in, which is a testament to their lasting power, I think. And they started out called the little folks. The little folks. <laughs> when they oh. were just two, two frame cartoon strips. <laughs> yes. Well, and so when they started, did Charlie Brown even have a name? Yeah, he's always been Charlie Brown. Okay. All and right. Snoopy was originally Spike. Yes. When he first submitted, um, where did he submit that to? Oh, right. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay. So he wanted to get in the Ripley's Believe It or Not and so did a comic book strip about his dog named Spike and used himself as Charlie Brown. And that was the first time that we really saw the beginning seeds of the Peanuts game. Sure. And he made it into Ripley's Believe It or Not. Believe it or not. But I'm ah. done. <laughs> No, and it's evolved so much. I mean, Charlie Brown looks a lot different than he did back in the early days. Spike obviously became Snoopy's brother, a very different Spike. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's not the same Spike. And um, poor Patty and Shermie, the other two characters that were introduced next, sadly didn't have lasting power. But speaking of Patty, we should talk about the first musical written based on the Peanuts gang, right? Yes. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. No, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Oh, jeez. So, uh, music and lyrics are by Clark Gessner. Book by John Gordon. Now, fun fact about this. Yes. And it turns out that this is a pseudonym for the ensemble. John Gordon, yes, he was one of the writers, but apparently he encompasses the ensemble because they believe that the first cast and full creative team actually all contributed so heavily to the book that yeah. it encompasses them as a unit. Basically. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's a pseudonym. It's um, it, the way they put this together, which is so genius and why it was hard to replicate, you know, is that they literally pulled comic strips and saw what worked and they they put together the show that worked until audiences began to enjoy it and that's why there's no book writer it's not like someone was like i'm going to i'm going to write that charlie brown <laughs> musical like right it started out as vignettes and rehearsal and then they created the show right uh okay so let's give them the synopsis and then we'll move on okay. to anyways synopsis Charlie Brown and the entire Peanuts gang explore life's greatest questions as they struggle with all the things that matter to the little folk. Baseball, homework, kites, crushes, and ultimately the age-old challenge, happiness. Happiness. So your good band, Charlie Brown, as we were just talking about, started off-Broadway, and it was a massive hit in 1967 with 1,597 performances. 
which is crazy town. I mean, aside from the Fantastics and maybe um, the Wonderettes, I don't know of any other off-Broadway show that has had that kind of success. No, I Or mean, maybe Little Shop, but oh, that's about it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It, it, it definitely, when this came out in the 60s, it was up there as far as long-running hits like the Fantastics, Fiddler on the Roof, Grease would be the one. But, uh, you know, those... Greece transferred to Broadway. Fiddler obviously open. Um, it was a long-running hit show, you know. Um, and we've seen some other ones like that. You mentioned the Wonderettes. I love you. Your perfect now change ran forever, like in a day. Yeah, five thousand uh, performances. Yeah. <laughs> so it eventually eclipsed it, but this was like the OG, like original long yeah. run off Broadway show. Yeah. And um it was interesting you bringing up like how they they created the book as an ensemble as a unit and how they took the comic strips, found what they liked, what they saw worked and then putting that into the show somehow. Right. And it explains a lot about how I feel about this show. <laughs> oh, so should we get into that or I mean where should we start? Well, I think that we should start there because okay. the off-Broadway, the original off-Broadway production, yes, there were changes made, especially to the iconic Broadway revival in 1999 that we Which all we'll know to. with, we we will get to with big fat old names. Um, that was one that Andrew Lippa contributed to. But I mean, for the most part, the bones of that show and a lot of the meat is still from the original right. production. Um and to me, it just feels like like that. Like it's it. There is no connective tissue besides this ethereal redheaded girl, you know. And so for me, I'm just like, I don't know what we're watching. <laughs> I so I have had the absolute luck because for a lot of people in in our age group and lower, nobody does the original production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown anymore. Right. But when I was in high school, it was we did it a year after the revival played and it was not available to license at that point. So you oh. could only do the original, which sucked for all of us because we're listening to Kristen and we're listening right. to Anthony Rapp and all of them. We're like, oh, it's not the same. But um, it was a favorite of the head of my drama department and um, chose the show for me. So I got to play Charlie Brown, which was really amazing. Um, and there is something really charming about it. But that original production, it is like the Fantastics in that it is so simplistic in mm. structure, in music. This is not complicated music, kids. And that off-Broadway production might have been a piano and percussion, if that. They did right. not dress like the Peanuts characters. They wore like jeans and colorful sweaters and baseball hats. You know, it wasn't a Schultze-inspired set. It was blocks and like big triangles that could become... Snoopy's doghouse and and all of that kind of stuff. It it almost is like it relied on the audience to use their imagination to put all of them in the world of peanuts, uh, which clearly struck a chord off Broadway. But it's um, it is that original version is a is an experience, you know. I think so, I would have preferred that. Oh, interesting. You might have. It is it is very much like the Fantastics. You the audience is is required to play a, a part in imagining what that world is, you know? And I I personally love that kind of sure. theater. I do. Um, I love the Fantastics. The Fantastics right. is one of my favorite musicals. And I like that idea because it's, it's about a bunch of kids and reminding adults about how to be kids, right? And so for me, 
adding in the building blocks thing and and making it about creating the imaginative experience is important. I also don't know that that would have worked on Broadway. Yeah. I think that maybe, you know, transferring that kind of production to Broadway definitely would not have worked. Right. In my opinion, um, because as we've seen many times before with many other shows, the minute you take a simple set and a simple show and put it on a big stage and all of a sudden it's got to fill a big, big house. It's got to fill a big stage. It's got to like right. try and encompass everyone from the back of the house. It just doesn't work most of the time. Um, so I understand why that wouldn't work when they did the Broadway revival. I guess that's what you would call it because it, well, I guess it's 1971, they did Broadway. Um, yeah. But Correct me if I'm wrong, but the 1971 Broadway run was the 67 off-Broadway production. It was a transfer, yeah. Okay. Um, it was a transfer, and uh, they did try to up the ante a little bit. Um, I think on the playbill for that, I've seen historically, you finally do see the Schultz characters, and it's like, we've okay. made it to Broadway or something um like <laughs> we have that. more budget so we can do costumes <laughs> uh and so that piano and percussion and maybe a flute becomes an orchestra because broadway theaters have orchestra minimums um, right so we did our version to tracks so we did tracks based on the broadway orchestration the which, 1971 yes Got um it. which has strings and has things but it absolutely takes the charm away the opening number in the 60s production is the cast literally walking on stage going but they're pretending to be drums right. and then the girls come out and they're like bah, 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 bah. and I'm making like horn motions <laughs> yes, with are. my You're hands the trombone situation, but um yeah. the, the they're pretending to be um horns Instruments, and then, yeah yeah and then Snoopy is like woof and then Linus is like boom because he's the bass drum they they come in the first thing the audience hears are these adults dressed like kids pretending to be a marching band with no instruments you know right so that's how you set up the off-Broadway production then you accept for the rest of the evening it's just piano and whatever right but on Broadway you have 20-piece orchestra that it's like right so we have to jarring. add in Right. Add a bit of an overture. We have to do an introduction. Yeah. We've got to establish that we have an orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. And I just don't, I like the idea of using imagination. I mean, that's what we all start out doing. You're in class and you're using blocks. Right. You're using black wooden blocks so right. you can create a world for yourself and it within your imagination and right. bring that to life and that's how we all start in this business so i love the idea that the original 1967 off broadway was that and allowed for that to happen now if they kept some of that and in the transfer to broadway in 71 i understand why it only ran for 32 performances because yeah. again it's really hard to make that ring true in a big space. Yeah. Just is. You know, it's uh, it's difficult. Yeah. Well, in the 1971, I mean, you're getting the Sondheim invasion. So Broadway, right. like you're getting company. Okay. Like, and so companies on Broadway and, and you're paying Broadway prices to like really think and be intellectual and then here comes the show with no sets or costumes and <laughs> they're kind of sort of the peanuts i i totally understand why there was something lost in translation like yeah and i hear that and then um 
we didn't hear much about this show until 1985 with the TV special. Oh, God. So did you get a chance to watch it? Because I, I did you not. A... So please, please take the reins, Bobby. Okay. So there are TV specials based on both of these musicals, which I did not discover until much after graduating from high school. I, I wish I had watched it before I did the show in high school, but um, <laughs> they're not good. Like, and I love the Charlie Brown and Snoopy specials, you know, Snoopy Come Home, which is also a musical, by the way with music by the um the Sherman brothers, Mary Poppins. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Is a good one. It is a good, well-crafted musical adventure on film. But these cut a lot of the songs, add other scenes in, and just like it's like they didn't have any kind of artistry in making a musical film. So the musical numbers come out of nowhere and the kids sound awful. I mean, because they're actual kids. Because all of the Charlie Brown cartoons are voiced by children i don't know but that doesn't work for the way that this musical is built and on top of it all they had already when they started making charlie brown and snoopy cartoons and animated specials they had established that snoopy doesn't speak so all of a sudden you're a good man charlie brown comes out in 1985 (laughs) and snoopy has songs snoopy has songs And, and i don't know if like people were ready for Snoopy to have a voice. And if they were, I don't know if they were ready for him to have that voice. So (laughs) So we go from the TV special in 85 and we don't hear again anything. And I'm not surprised after that to till 1998 when we do the U.S. tour that eventually becomes the 1999 Broadway revival that I would say the majority of people know and reference right um so the broadway revival had 142 performance so it was already more successful than 71 but still a flop right um they replaced peppermint patty with it's not peppermint patty though that's what i was trying to get on okay you explain this charlie brown had just patty who was Ooh, right. the okay. first female to ever be in the comic strip. Okay. So she she made it into the original musical. <laughs> However, by the time 1999 around, she had already been removed from the comics and um replaced with Sally. Sal- sadly. Yeah, and that was the closest right. character that made sense, you know. Right, that makes sense. Um and honestly, <laughs> I can't think of doing Charlie Brown without a Sally. Like, right. that's bizarre to me, mostly because I grew up with the comics that involve Sally. Right. And then Andrew Lippa, of course, as we spoke about, rewrote a lot of the arrangements and put in some new songs. Star-studded mm-hmm. cast. I mean, B.D. Wong, Anthony Rapp, Roger Kristen Bart, Chenoweth. I Chris, mean, yeah. come on. Everybody and their mother. And Roger and Kristen actually both won Tonys for their oh, performances. Oh, yeah. It is the moment that Kristen Chenoweth became a star. Like yeah. it was the, it was, we, everyone talks about Millie, you know, and Sutton mm-hmm. Foster and that overnight. But like literally, Kristen Chenoweth before this did very small roles. Oh, in and shows. have you heard her casting story? No. Oh my gosh. Spell. It's so funny. She talks about it in one of her books and was living with eight other people in a two bedroom. 
which one of which I think was Danny Gerwin, but continue. Oh, really? That's funny. I'm not surprised. She randomly got asked to audition for this thing. And she, of course, New Philosophy is her song in the show. And it was new to the show. So she had never heard it before. She was like, what is this song? And she like reads through the lyrics and she was blown away because she was like, this is me. I just like immediately knew what to do with it. And so went in. I think that she... There was some like strange way how she got the audition. I don't remember exactly. And uh, so she went and she did it. I like they called her the next day and they're like, you booked it. You're done. I mean, what she did with that, like, I mean, it was it was talk talk about like perfect glove, you know, Mm -hmm. and that whole cast was like like a perfect glove. But yeah, what I really love about this show is that it is a true character actors show and I mean that in the actual sense of the term character actor not what we've come to know it in the Hollywood terms of oh you don't fit the physical mold so therefore you're a character actor that's not really how that works right it doesn't matter what you look like or what you sound like a character actor is someone who can truly embody another human right and really morph and change and make strong choices and become somebody outside themselves and they found that in this cast i think and to me this is one of those shows that doesn't really work without that kind of actor and if you can't find an ensemble cast of that it doesn't work well, and talk about, you know, also the diversity of the cast, you know, B.D. Wong yeah. being the the perfect choice for Linus, who just happens to be an Asian American actor, you know? Yes. Finding um, just the whole cast is just, it, it was a time period where I think we as an industry were better about that. And mm-hmm. I think we've lost our way a little bit because this is two years after the Whitney Houston and Brandy Cinderella, where mm. nobody questioned why Whoopi Goldberg and Victor Garber had a Filipino son as a prince. Right. You just, it was, and it was amazing. And this was very much in that same world. And um, again, I think we've moved backwards from this because it really was unprecedented to see, you know? But again, my problems come down to the structure. To like the structure I don't, of the show, okay. I don't know what we're fighting for. I don't know why we're here. To me, I think it would be much better as a one act. I do not understand why it's two acts. Okay. There's there's a lot of music you can take out. I Like mean, what? The Doctor's in. No, oh, it's so good. <laughs> Even the kite, I think. Okay, well, the kite could go... I, rabbit chasing? I mean, come on. Like, why are we rabbit chasing? only in the revival. <laughs> I don't understand why it's two acts. I remember watching this at a regional house out here in a small space. And I had a bunch of really talented friends in it. And I remember sitting there and being like, at the end of act one, I'm like, oh, okay, that was the show. Okay, that's cute. All right. And then my husband was like, no, we've got an entire second act, Christina. And I was like, why? Why do we have a, why do we have a second act? And he was like, because that's the show. You still have to do my new philosophy. And I was like, oh my gosh, no. No. And it was, I just like, I don't know. I just didn't know why we were there. I mean, the way it's been described to me and the way that I approached it when I did it many moons ago (laughs) is that all it is is a day in the life of Charlie Brown. And when you accept that that's all that the show is, is I think you can appreciate it more. And, And it's really... He is the glue for the rest of the things that happen around him. 
you know, one of the first book scenes in the musical is the lunch hour, you know, where um, Charlie Brown is eating his lunch and he gets the peanut butter stuck on the roof of his mouth. And he talks about the little redheaded girl and it he sets that up as the plot. And throughout, you see him um, uh, have these interactions with people you know, from the doctor's in with him and Lucy and then him in the baseball game and him in his book report, it all comes back to him trying to get up the nerve to speak to this little redheaded girl. And he can't, but right before the finale, he finds her pencil and he notices that she's chewed on it. You know, it's got teeth marks in it. And he's built up this whole time that she is this elusive out of reach character, but he realizes that no, she's just human like he is. And it makes him so incredibly happy, which is why they sing happiness, which um, is a beautiful song. And honestly makes you fall in love with characters. Sure. But it's the final song of the show. No, I know I, it takes a lot to get there, but that's, that's what the, the crux of the prop, the plot is, you know, and when you say it like that, it's beautiful and gorgeous. And I sure. want to watch that show, but then I'm watching it and I got, none yeah. of that exists. I get it. I totally get and it. And maybe I, that comes down to direction, you know, maybe, Maybe it comes down to direction. Maybe it comes down to the right cast. I don't know. But again, when I read through synopses, even some of the songs, I'm just like, of course I want to watch this show. And then I watch it. I'm like, hi. Okay, we get it. Move on. It's not Shakespeare. Well, look, Move on. <laughs> no. And and look, it hasn't done well both time. It's been on Broadway. And I right. think if it was ever given a moment to truly succeed, it was this revival. You know, yeah. that that show was so basic and simplistic, the original version that they put together, it needed arrangers. It needed people to come in and it needed to look like peanuts. I think by the seventies, even they had already started doing animated TV specials and things right. like that. You can't have an established world where Charlie Brown moves and talks and all of that on screen, but then it not look like that when you come to the stage, you know, and yeah. Andrew Lippa, because he writes such jazzy music that is pop, poppy but also timeless he was the perfect person to like make this score relevant i think i agree and here's the thing i think that i am in the minority in how i feel about this show so i am a little surprised that um the broadway revival didn't really succeed right but i went and looked at like what was going on at the time in 1999 dark time it was a very dark time i mean not to bring it down but we had the Columbine shootings, you know, so there was that, that you were competing with, with the show about children and, right. you know, being at school. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that plays into the psyche of who's watching it, who's buying tickets, but I would imagine that it is there in some form or fashion. You had Napster released, which, you know, like all of a sudden you can get any music you want online. Oh, my gosh. I don't have to buy a CD. I don't have to pay for it. Oh, man. You know, which then opened up a whole can of worms that we're still dealing with today. Um, SpongeBob premieres. Which is interesting you mentioned that yeah. because you talk about timeless, yep. timeless animated figures that will not go away and are relevant to both <laughs> children and adults and actually a really philosophical. I mean, yeah. I don't know if when I saw Spongebob in 1999, which I absolutely watched, Me too. Um, if I knew it would have had the lasting power, but of all of the Disney and Nickelodeon stuff from that era, I mean, Spongebob is with us forever, I think. 
and the millennium was coming. It's 1999. And I remember 1999 and how panicked people were throughout that entire year leading up to New Year's. To all you children out there, like you might laugh, but people, we all legit thought the world was going to end. Yeah. I mean, we had... No idea. And I remember I was sitting, we're dating ourselves so bad. I (laughs) sat there on New Year's Eve, 1999, because I was definitely either graduating from middle school or in my first year of high school at that point. Um, I sat there on New Year's with AIM messages ready to be like, congrats, you're not dead to all of my friends on AOL Instant Messenger. And I clicked the button to send them out at 12.01. Like, we made it. We didn't die. (laughs) No, but it was a real fear. It was a real fear. And can you imagine, like, going to see this True Innocence production? Like, I mean, it just wasn't in... It wasn't where people were at at the time. I think that it has had a long life since this revival. I mean, it had it had a second revival in 2016. Oh, um, with um the kids, like actual children, yeah? Right. And that apparently... And that was off-Broadway, I should specify. Mm-hmm. It was off-Broadway. Um, but everything I read about that production was how acclaimed it was by critics. They called it effortless, that it was a true joy to watch. And I mean, it has had a real life since in the regional market. I mean, in this time of like bringing theater back, especially regionally, it's at, I think, about 12 different theaters across the country and a couple of them here in Southern California. (laughs) Oh, I mean, there was one over the summer here in Las Vegas, like one of the theater. It was one of the first shows. They're like, we're open. Charlie Brown. There you go. Well, I mean, it's what, seven people? Six or seven? Six or seven. Something like that is the cast. You could use tracks because they exist. I mean, they exist. And, you know, a lot of people use them regionally, especially if you're in a small house where you can't Mm -hmm. hide a a band. But even if you do have a band, all you really need is a piano, maybe a really simple drum set, and um, maybe a guitar. You know, I'm going to say something awful. If this show had waited two years to be revived on Broadway the first time... I think Mm. it would have actually been a big hit because I think Charlie Brown, this musical is a comfort musical to a lot of people post a lot of stress and post the pandemic. I think if this had come in the year or two after um, 9-11, I think it actually might have been a little bit more successful than it was before that happened, you know? Well, and speaking of it being a comfort musical, it's probably the reason why there's a second Peanuts musical based on this material, right? That's right. If you didn't know, there's a sequel, which we will talk about after this break. This is our commercial break. To advertise here, please email myfavoriteflop at gmail.com and visit our website for previous episodes. And to buy merch, please buy our merch. We have a one-year-old to feed. And now back to my favorite flop. Okay, Bobby, let's get into this sequel. It's I, Snoopy the Musical. I mean, I you know how much I love sequels, especially of the musical persuasion. You do. So obviously, this is a favorite of mine. Um, when I discovered this existed, it was after I did 
Charlie Brown in high school. And yes. I could was like, we have to do it. We I found out there's another one. <laughs> we have to do it. And um, you could not find the cast recording to this in the early 2000s. I made my parents take me and my brothers and sisters to Knott's Berry Farm so I could buy the cast album to see be the musical there. Because <laughs> it was you did. not available at Barnes and Noble or Borders, which is how we used to buy these things. Um and that or is Or the I library. Just, that was how I listened to my first cast albums. Me and libraries never got along until I worked in one, which is <laughs> I don't know. Um, so Snoopy All right, the musical. Bobby, why don't you why don't you give us the the lowdown on Snoopy? Okay, Snoopy, the musical provides a dog's eye view of the Peanuts pals day in day out. Everyone's favorite beagle looks down upon the world and his friends atop his doghouse and finds himself daydreaming of wanting to kick up his paws and dance, go to school, write the world's greatest novel, and much much more adorable uh just so we know who wrote it uh this is actually a different creative team so it's uh music was by larry grossman lyrics by hal hackaday i love that name hal hackaday i mean hackaday. so fun uh book by warren lockhart arthur whitelaw and michael grace so they they had a lot of friends working on this book but to be fair I have read that they get credit for just being the ones to take the comic strips and put them together themselves this time. So instead of a giant team of let's put the script together, it's the three of them. Um, well, and I believe that Arthur Whitelaw was actually one of the producers of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. So, yes. So it makes sense that he would be a part of the sequel. So it started out in San Francisco, actually. Yeah. Which I find fun because that's very close to where the Schultz Museum is, right? right? So 1975 in San Francisco got a lot of mixed reviews. They were, of course, comparing it to Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, which the off-Broadway at this point was such a massive hit. And it had also toured America. So oh, everybody yeah. had seen it at this point. It was like Jersey Boys where everyone had seen it twice. And so, yeah, it makes sense that they would immediately refer to your good man charlie brown in comparison but it lasted about seven months in san francisco oh wow okay which is a long run for a regional in san francisco specifically yeah and then it went to off-broadway in 82 lots of the same creatives but here's another fun jb reference ron melrose was the music supervisor He's also the music supervisor for Jersey Boys. Oh, I was like, where are you going with this? Oh, that's so interesting. And it also starred one of our favorites, Miss yes. Vicki Lewis. Who was also replaced by one of my favorites, <laughs> Miss Lorna Luft, who obviously one of Judy Garland's daughters, Liza Minnelli's sister, yep. but also famously Paulette in Grease 2, which is another sequel that I adore. Uh, <laughs> You and your uh, musical sequels, Bobby. I, I love them. So you want to do a stalker cabaret? I want to do a three-hour evening of musical sequels. You're not allowed to leave until it's over. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so we, we've kind of talked a little bit about the music here. Musically, this is a much more complex show than You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Yes, and it's better. Well, and that's because uh, Larry Grossman and Hal Hackaday are like... They, they wrote other musicals. I don't believe right. Clark Gessner wrote more musicals, but these no, are... No, that was their only. 
Yeah, these are these are legitimate Broadway composers. So yes. it is a much more complex experience, even when you listen to it pared down in that original 1975 San Francisco cast recording. Uh, you can already tell the difference. Yeah. And also when it was off-Broadway in 82, it ran for over 150. So not not too many. Like right. it was similar to the Broadway revival of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, but off-Broadway. And when they did the replacement of Vicki Lewis to Lorna Luft is actually when they added in Hurry Up Face, which is probably one of the most well-known songs from the score, oh, I would absolutely. say. It gets done a lot. I'm sure a lot of you have heard it before, even if you didn't realize it was from Snoopy the Musical. Um, and Hurry Up Face is really a beautiful song. Um, and it, it certainly has a place in this. But it was really successful, actually, when it went to the West End. So it went to the West End in 83, and it was a huge success and ran forever. <laughs> well, and this is kind of when it got its even though Andrew Lippa, which we'll get to later, did do a revision of Snoopy. Right. That West End production, it's like what they did to the revival of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, is kind of what they did to the West End. The music got arranged better. They mm -hmm. got a bigger orchestra. The vocals were perfected. And they switched out some songs and added some new ones to really flush out the story and the characters that they presented at the show. I listened to both the U.S., version mm -hmm. and the UK version. And I think the UK version is much better, not just because of flushing out the arrangements, but the specificity was there. Like jokes that were missed in the US production were not missed in the UK. So much fun. One of my favorite, and it's not like the best thing in the world to mention, but one of my favorite things to point out as far as that happening, because usually I, when a show starts in the U.S. and it goes to the U.K., I don't always love the U.K. recording. This is 100% okay. the opposite. Um, Pamela Myers played the original Peppermint Patty in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. she's Marta from Company. And so right. this is just a couple years after Marta from Company. She's a brilliant actress. She's a brilliant singer, etc. I'm not a fan of her Peppermint Patty, but in I Know Now, which is one of my favorite songs, it's the trio of the so three girls. Good. You know, she's like, you can't fit a flea with a collar. Get it, Sally? But the way she delivers, it's like, get it, Sally? Or something. It's so <laughs> robotic. And I'm like, I, were they tired when they recorded this? I don't know. Because like in the British production, she's cracking herself up. And you're like, that's so Peppermint Patty, you know? One of my issues with the American recording is... There are more ballads, I would say, in Snoopy than there were in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, which I don't necessarily know is the right choice, but I wasn't all—I wasn't really upset by it. Uh -huh. But the American cast takes it so seriously. And I'm like, you guys, you're children. You're playing children. Why is this like you're doing surgery? Um, a little bit. A little bit, right? But then the UK cast come in and they just have a good old time with it. And all of a sudden, these ballads become more meaningful. There's, there's simple storytelling in right. the best way. And they really just say the words and don't run into the furniture. You no, know, it's it's really, again, I can't help but compare it to that revival of your good man, Charlie Brown. Talk about actors who fit these roles like a glove. Right. And they don't even necessarily sound like the U.S. cartoon versions do. But you can tell they're adults. 
who are embodying these children so incredibly well and are in it. It is a very ballad-heavy score. That's very Grossman and Akaday, uh, you know, looking at their other work. I think it all works musically in Snoopy, except for where did that little dog go? And maybe it's because I am a Charlie Brown. I just... To me, it is the one song in the entire Snoopy, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown universe that I'm like, no, this is a gay man's cabaret act. This is not <laughs> this is not appropriate for Charlie Brown to be singing. There's nothing about this character that sings that song. So from the West End production was in 83, right? Yeah. And then there was the U.S. 1988 television version, which... <laughs> Oh, Same. Bobby. I mean, we don't have to dwell on it. It's just really bad. And um, like the tempos are all wrong. And I just I don't even remember like specifics other than, again, it's jarring to see animated Snoopy speaking and singing, you know? Well, after that, we don't hear about it really until 2003 when the West End revival happens. Right. Which I actually don't know much about. I, you know, I know it existed, but I don't know what they did with it. Um, I mean, based on what I've found, it's very similar to the original West End. Okay. I'm sure that it was spruced up a bit, and I'm sure that it was definitely approached from a different point of view because it's, what, sure. 20 years later? But it only had 14 performances, so it was okay. a lot less successful. Sure. And, I mean, as we've spoken about with both the Charlie Brown revival and this original West End production the cast fit the show like a glove. Right. And so I think the question then becomes, is is that what it means? Yeah. Well, talking about you know? the cast fitting it like a glove, because after this, in 2004, we see this star-studded concert in the U.S., which I am so sad did not transfer because we're talking names in this. Yeah, I don't know. I know you have opinion. Okay, so this production, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, starred Christian Borle as uh, Charlie Brown, Sutton Foster as Peppermint Patty, Anne Harada as Lucy, Hunter Foster, so them together, as Linus. <laughs> Is uh, that the only time they've worked together? They were in Greece together, and they almost went on one night as Danny and Sandy. Oh, that sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, well, they did, it was not something that anybody wanted to happen. Okay, they were <laughs> understudies. Oh, Bunheads. They played brother and sister on that. Did you oh, watch Bunheads? right. I, yes, of course I watched Bunheads. Okay. Who are you talking to? I mean, obviously. <laughs> but uh, oh, who else was in that? Um, so many people. Uh, Devin May, who was Batboy, was Snoopy. And who played Sally? Oh, Hunter Foster's wife, Jen yeah. Cody. So, yeah. no, and it was. Uh, look, I've seen videos of it, and okay. it's fun. And it was directed by our friend Ben Rimmelauer. I mean, yeah, and it was a lot of fun, and it really felt like a group of actor friends getting together and doing a show together. Okay, which I mean, based on very little that I know because I am not friends with any of these humans. Um, right. It sounds like they all know each other well. They had all worked together before in some form or fashion. Right. They seem to be, a, at the time, a part of a friend group, you know. And I think that's great. And I think it's great that they were in a position where they got to have fun and do it on a pretty big scale and get people there. And look, if I were in that position, I'd be doing the exact same thing. Right. I don't know. It just didn't have the same kind of life to it okay. as that first West End production did. And that's, the, again, that's why I keep coming back to. It's, you have to have real character actors playing these roles. Now, 
moving away from performance, I really would like to talk about structure of the show. Okay. So Snoopy, I think has a better story structure and has more to it than you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And I'm more likely to want to sit through two acts. Well, there's action. There is, there's movement, right? Snoopy has wants that he is actively chasing through the plot. Exactly. And there's conflict. That's true. There is no conflict in your good man, Charlie Brown. No, that's that. I will give you that. That's true. Like there just isn't. There's some superficial conflict between him and Sally because that's your good man, Charlie Brown, or that's just Charlie Brown and the peanuts. right? Right. Like, but there's no actual conflict and you can't have a great story without great conflict. Just like you can't have great comedy without great conflict. Right. Um, and so for me, Snoopy as a story makes way more sense and makes me want to know, is Snoopy going to succeed? Right. Is he going to succeed? Is he going to write the epic book? Is he going to get to meet his mom? Like, are, are these things going to happen? Right. And you want to go along on the journey. And you also like, especially when him and Charlie Brown's relationship is on the rocks and you're like, oh my gosh, are they going to get through it? Well, in the finale, I mean, happiness Ugh. is, so happiness and you're a good man, Charlie Brown, is such an iconic, like, standard at this point you know kids sing in preschool yeah but just one person rips your heart and i don't know if it's colored because of a different performance outside the context of the show that it's iconically associated with but the whole idea of this group of people singing to snoopy because it's always charlie brown who needs cheering up it's always whatever and so when charlie brown sings to snoopy don't worry like i believe in you It is so, I'm like tearing up now. It is so emotional because Snoopy is always this strong commenter. You know, Snoopy is the rock of like this entire thing. For them to flip it and dramatically put it on its head where Snoopy is questioning so much, it's kind of mind-blowing, you know? So, Bobby, you just brought up um, the iconic performance of just one person. I actually don't, I don't think I know what that is. So. This musical, other than Herbie Up Face being a popular song for a lot of musical theater actresses, just one person, and I don't know who found it, who got the the brains to do it, but um, at Jim Henson's memorial in the 90s, after he passed away, uh, all of the Muppets in Sesame Street, etc., sang this to him. And um, I, I don't even remember where I saw this as a kid, but I remember when I discovered this musical, I was like, what is the song? I know this song. And I remember being in college and someone showing it to me again. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so heart wrenching. Yeah. And um, yeah, a lot of people associate it with the Muppets and Sesame Street more than they do this musical because right. of that like moment with Frank Oz and the rest of the Muppeteers with their puppets. singing this to Jim Henson, you know, like it just uh, makes me want to cry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, we'll have to post that video. Um, absolutely beautiful. Okay. So in 82 is when we had the off Broadway revival. Right. And at the time there was a lot going on in pop culture. Um, the thriller premiere happened, um, which changed, 
changed the face of music, changed the face of music videos, how people right. like people actually went and wanted to go watch music videos. They're cinematic now. You know, you had late night TV with David Letterman that premiered that year. Um, E.T. premieres like I these mean. are big changes right. in pop culture and art form. And then you have, you know, Snoopy the musical off Broadway. And I just feel like, again, <laughs> it's got to get lost in that. Yeah, it's it's the timing just seems so off for both of these shows. You know, it's you, you have E.T., you have the dawn of Steven Spielberg. I know it's not his first one, but like uh, Steven Spielberg, who is the iconic director of excess but also amazing this you know yeah like uh, no it's true and i mean 83 is when we had the uk west end right? right and that's only a year later and all of a sudden everything changes again because then we had the first american woman in space we have the cold war climax we've got fraggle rock premiering which i just felt the need to say that because i, mean, I was obsessed with fraggle rock um you know we had so many things happening. And 83, we have the UK West End production, right? right. But it's um, that's only a year later. And we kind of touched on this with Charlie Brown, how it's a comfort musical. So like, especially post-COVID, of course, everybody wants to do it. How right. you mentioned, if it had come after 9-11, that it would have been more successful because it's true comfort. It's chicken soup for the soul, right? Oh, yeah. And I think Snoopy would definitely fall in that category. And 83, especially in the UK, was a rough time. You had the IRA bombing in Harrods. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you had Maggie Thatcher becoming prime minister, which... The same year. Oh, my. It's There's a lot of terribleness happening. And so having something like a Chicken Soup for the Soul musical like Snoopy, right. I think that's something that would really speak to people. No, it makes sense. And, you know, even in the the theater scene in the UK is you're getting these serious Evita and mm. we're on the cusp of Les Miserables, you know. So this this definitely felt like a nice break, I'm sure, for a lot of folks who were looking for escapism, you know, and that absolutely makes sense. I mean, after all of that, I want to see Charlie Brown and Snoopy. So So it it is interesting how current events can be so impactful on shows. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, and we've covered some and we will continue to cover some shows that I clearly think were just, I mean, my opinion doesn't always matter, but I clearly think had they been produced even the same way in a different time period, they may have been much more successful than they were when they did actually make it to New York City. This commercial break is sponsored by Please Buy Our Merch. Please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com today. What about the Peanuts characters makes them so loved that they transcend time? I... I think we 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 touched on it a little bit. You know, they're enjoyed by kids. Kids understand it. They enjoy them. It speaks to children. But they're meant for adults. You know, we are supposed to see ourselves in these people. I have fully embraced the fact that I am a Charlie Brown 
you know, and, you know, we all know Lucy's and we all know peppermint patties. We all know Sally's and we all know Linus's and, um, you know, they really represent these characters of adult personas. And even though everything is framed from the problems of children, the problems that these characters go through are ageless. You know, mm. we are always so many of us are Charlie Brown at different points of our life, you know, and. Yeah, maybe it's about the little redheaded girl not noticing him, or maybe it's about his dog not noticing him, or, you know, or not being able to kick the football. Like, we can, we get that, you know? We totally, we, we get that. So I think that plays a big part of it. Uh, now, I have another question because I've been thinking about this through listening to both these shows. Do you think there's a world where it actually makes more sense to combine these two shows? I mean, that's a dangerous answer, but because Snoopy is technically a sequel to the original, even though it has different songwriters, uh, I think, and I've never made my, you know, Bobby's Infinite playlist of both shows. <laughs> Please I, do that. But no, but I think that some of the group stuff in Snoopy is just leaps and bounds over the group stuff in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe is like, oh, you did the book report? here's part two and it's yeah. better, you know, and, uh, the clouds, you know, don't think, don't be everything. Don't be anything less than everything you can be. Mm. You know, they're all just, they're better songs, I think. Um, yeah. but there are really great treasures in the original score to your good man, Charlie Brown. So I, I, I would be open to seeing a combined version that takes the best parts of both. What about you? I mean, I feel like your answer is probably I mean, yes, my answer is I think it actually makes a lot of sense. And what I think actually makes a lot of sense is that your good man, Charlie Brown, if you make that act one, okay, right, you cut out all the fat and really hone in on introducing the characters and who they are. Right. And putting that in act one and, and having all of that and even setting up, you know, some of Charlie Brown being a little more lighthearted like he is in your good man, Charlie Brown, you know, in Snoopy, he is a little more grounded. He's a little more down to earth and right. serious. Um, and then you do act two as Snoopy and you get those heart gut wrenching, beautiful pieces and have those serious moments and have the moments of Snoopy questioning himself and bring it together at the end. I think that is a far more dynamic story to tell. Okay. Um, and one that leaves the audience wanting for more in a good way. So I have an interesting question for you, specifically because you're female. Okay. Something that really isn't prevalent in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown is a strong female character or any kind of mm. strong female character storyline that we're following. Yeah. Snoopy gives us that with Peppermint Patty, which I find fascinating because... She has never been the most popular character of the comic strip nope. and not definitely isn't the most popular female character. Uh, I've always I've always wondered, like, I would love to talk to the creative team, you know, at some point in the, the <laughs> nether land of the afterlife uh, to find out why they chose Peppermint Patty, because it's so interesting that she is given this strong track that is almost as big as Snoopy's, you know, with oh, yeah. her, especially with hurry up face being added, but she is, she is very much the female lead of this musical. 
if you combine them, do you keep that? Do you think peppermint patty is the right one? Are they doing themselves a disservice by not giving Lucy a chance to be humanized and fleshed out more? I know I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because no, I've always I think wondered. Peppermint, I think peppermint patty makes complete sense to me. And I actually really love what they do with her in Snoopy right. and how it becomes this lost love story in a way and they kind of try to do something like that with your good man charlie brown i just don't think that it lands right um and like i i mean lucy is fun in in a lot of respects and like certainly brings comedic relief but i don't think that she is your strong female lead i think you want someone with more heart which okay. is what peppermint patty has yeah, it's it's always fascinated me. I definitely think Peppermint Patty needs to be your leading lady, especially okay. if you do a combination of these two. Um, you Obviously, I don't think you should lose Lucy. I think that she exists and should be there. Um, and again, it's great comedic relief. But yeah, no, your leading lady is Peppermint Patty. Okay. So you mentioned in Snoopy how, and we kind of just talked about this, how Snoopy then graduates the show. It's into this place of like really getting to know each other and having a grounded friendship and, and you know, the darker side of things. And it's interesting to me because we mention in the final moments where Charlie Brown turns to Snoopy and says, I'm your rock now right. instead of you having to be mine, which oddly enough leads us into what would be the third storytelling of this kind of thing in this in what you may want to call a trilogy it's not a musical but it's dog sees god i was gonna bring it up and i'm so <laughs> glad that you did uh i mean look dog sees god does not need to be done again <laughs> yeah oh, i think that there it has validity and all of that i love it oh, but my it certainly gives a reason for the storyline of dog sees god Snoopy one, does. 100 percent It it is really the unofficial sequel to both of these musicals. The show as a whole for me is like too much. And it's okay. And it's a lot. This well, isn't a music this isn't a podcast about plays. It's a podcast about musicals. Podcast but anyways, about it is interesting to me how Snoopy then allows for things like Dog Sees God to happen because you've established in in a world where it can be that it can start to get dark, right? No, I've never even thought about it that way. So thank you for painting that picture. You are so very welcome. I also think that without shows like Snoopy and Charlie Brown, we would not have the opportunity to have the success of shows like 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. I agree with that statement. You know, these are by far not the only uh, musicals that are geared towards younger audiences that have been mm -hmm. produced in the annals of Broadway history. You know, it's it's interesting because Charlie Brown, as much as it officially, for the sake of this podcast, flopped on Broadway, that's why we get to talk about it, flopped on Broadway twice. It is one of the most well-known and beloved musicals on the planet. So we cheat a little bit, which I love. And <laughs> Snoopy has its fans as well. I just don't think it's, in America at least, ever gotten its due because... The yeah. other one eclipses it. I 100% think these are both precursors to Spelling Bee. Uh, without these, we would never have gotten Spelling Bee, I don't think. No, I mean, I'm sure William Finn would have written them, but I don't think that they would have, I don't think it would have been greenlit. Right. 
because there wasn't any pre-existing evidence that a show with adults playing children works right. and it beca- can become beloved by the greater population. So yeah, I think that we have these shows to thank for the success of Spelling Bee. Yeah. So I mean, in a lot of ways, they owe a lot of the blood, sweat, and tears to the Peanuts crew for paving the way for them. And, you know, it's it's uh, talking about evolutions. William Finn is a much more complex composer than, yes. you know, Grossman and Hackaday and much more complex than Clark Gesner. So it allows them to get into that intellectual space. Like Spelling Bee allows us to really think as the adults watching it more than Peanuts could. Okay. I want to talk about the other comic book musicals. You know, most infamously is a show called Doonesbury, which I hope yep. one day we we look at on this podcast. I have never understood the Doonesbury comic that it's based on. So the musical is just lost on me. But I know that it's a, a favorite of Miss Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Uh, uh-huh. And um, she's covered a lot of her songs in her concert series. And uh, that one existed. That one was the thing. Uh um, uh, some of these other, you know, based on comics, of course, you have Annie, uh, which was successful, but you have the two Annie sequels that were not. And um, absolutely not, which we are going to talk about at a future date, I hope. But, um, <laughs> you know, Annie two, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Slash Annie I Warbucks. still cannot believe that that is the name they went with. I mean, that's why it failed. Point blank. Yeah. Well, but and the reason I wanted to focus on sequels in that article is because comics are serials, you know, and they are the the I think if the proof and the pudding, if you're going to create Marvel Cinematic Universes in the theater world, comics are the base material to look at to start that world. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't surprise me that Snoopy is a, they wanted to make a sequel because these characters have already been in. 12,000 situation. So why not write another dramatic story about them? And, well, yeah, uh, and at its height, it was making $1 billion a year. Well, there's that too. So <laughs> then you get, you get, you know, Annie, one of the most successful musicals ever produced on Broadway. To me, you, like, I don't think like, haha, yeah, you're going to write a sequel to Annie. Like the musical was about her going with Daddy Warbucks, but there've been a lot of comics about Annie after she's living with Daddy Warbucks. So why not tell more of those stories? Those stories already exist. Now, was it Miss Hannigan getting revenge? I don't don't know. But um, And then, of course, another one that actually was a flop that I didn't even include in the thing was The Addams Family. You know, we relate it so much to the iconic films with, you know, Angelica Houston and Christina Ricci and Christopher Lloyd and... The original TV series oh, as and well. That too. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So we think Adam's family that, but that was a comic strip. Yeah. It started as a it started out in the New Yorker, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. By Charles Adams, which I hope his family wasn't like them. Or maybe I do like it. Look, uh, if they had a hand running around like a pet, if I had <laughs> here for like. it. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i i'm actually shocked we haven't seen more of them you know do you, i mean what are some of your favorite sunday comics oh i mean i was a huge dennis the menace fan mostly because i just wanted to get up to all of those shenanigans okay um now, and i loved the dennis the menace movie <laughs> but it, so dennis the menace do you think it would make a good musical i don't know I don't know i think that that would take a really fun creative team. 
Okay. Like it would, because to imagine it and maybe it's, it's like the peanuts uh, where it's not a little boy playing Dennis. Maybe it's an adult, you know, like, and we do it that way. And like, what does that look like? I, I don't know. I think it could be a lot of fun. I also think it's a way to utilize theater magic. Okay. In, in some ways with all the pranks that he gets to do, you know? But I also, I don't know. I, it may not work. Okay. It would be similar to like if they did a Home Alone musical, I think. And then it's like if you're going to do one, you might as well do, do Home Alone. I which, which that's a that's a flashback to our Christmas special that was... Almost a year ago, Christina. Crazy town. Uh, I could buy a Dennis the Menace musical. I mean, it's worked as a successful television cartoon. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the movies, obviously. Well, and fun fact, in 1951, did you know this? In 1951, there was both a UK and a US version of the Dennis the Menace comic strip. Wait, what? They were completely different, done by completely different artists, literally released within a couple of hours of each other. No way. Oh, yeah, seriously. They had no idea that they had basically created the exact same thing. Um, But uh, yeah, the UK Dennis, for all of our UK listeners out there, uh, he's totally mean-spirited. But the US version is uh, a little bit more lovable. But that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's insane. Seriously, same day, two completely different continents, separated by an ocean, same title, and same basic premise. I feel like if that wasn't backed up with research, no one would believe it. Yeah. That's crazy town. I, I don't know. I love anything where it's a kid who's get I, little rascals was one of my favorite films. Sure. Like anything where we get to get into shenanigans and like show the adults what it's about, like what life is right. all about. I'm here for well, it. That is my gig. Well, that's our show on Schultz, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of My Favorite Flop. We're so happy that you joined us in your earphones. Or your car stereo, because that's where I listen to our podcast. So um, thank you all for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, please continue to follow us all over social media for all sorts of fun things, picture collages, videos, fun facts. Um, You know, I'm trying to pioneer the My Favorite Fact for each episode. Uh, And luckily, there's a lot of good ones. But please stay tuned to our social. We're all over Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Twitter. So check us out there. And Christina, where can they find the podcast? Well, you can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you would know that if you bought our merch. Because on the back of those t-shirts, it tells you. Anywhere you listen to podcasts. And it's got our logo with headphones. So, like, you totally understand it. All right, Christina. Should we give them the clue for episode 18? Yeah, Bobby. Lay it on them. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the first clue for episode 18 is this. Both of these deadly musicals based on novels were described by Ben Brantley as having nothing going on that would keep you awake, a.k.a. a musical sleeping pill. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm so excited. It's spooky season, and this is my favorite season ever. Be sure to listen back in in two weeks' time for our next episode. 
It's going to be a killer. All right, Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners? What should Billy Flynn always wear to a court? What? A good lawsuit. But, um, Broadway's back. Bye. Bye. <laughs>